Good morning. Welcome, Ohana, KBC. Uh, welcome back, or I guess I was the one who was gone, wasn't I? So uh, this is my first Sunday back. Uh, I was on vacation and took two Sundays uh, from preaching. And so I just want to say thank you very fast. Uh, first to the body, to KBC, uh, for, in many ways, letting me have a vacation. You guys have uh, are the ones who have cared for me so well. Uh, I can honestly and truly say were it not for... Uh, the body of Christ, our vacation will not have been so well. Many of you reached out to us, brought us lunch, babysat our children so my wife and I could have a date. And uh, truly the level of care and kindness that I have seen uh, from you to me and my family considering us uh, has been uh, unlike anywhere I have ever seen or experienced. So I just want to say thank you uh, to my ohana here at Kahului Baptist Church. It is a privilege. It is a joy to serve you. Uh, I also want to say thank you to Nick Tanaka and Pastor Jim uh, for preaching for me while I was gone. I got to listen to both of those sermons now, both excellent sermons, and we are very blessed to have men who are able to preach the gospel and proclaim the Word of God. Amen? Uh, amen. So uh, thank you guys for all you have done. Now, we are in Exodus 19. We're going to get back at it. The title of the sermon is Behold Our God. Behold our God. And speaking of, I came back to a surprise when I came back my first Sunday. There was a little bit of a surprise here. I, I went to look at my wooden, uh, my normal wooden stand, and I was like, upgrade over here. What is this? It's a nice big uh, platform. To uh, These are what I would use before, just this little thing here. Um, and you could like swip it, you know, whip it around like a lightsaber. It was lighter. Um, this one, a little bit heavier. Uh, so this is awesome, uh, a big blessing. It's nice to be able to lay out things. Uh, I'll be able to have both my iPad and my Bible, that paperback thing that people used to open. Uh, now you turn them on and stuff, but you used to open them. I'd like to have one of those up here now, so uh, this will allow for that. So I'm very, very, very excited. Um, behold our God, Exodus 19. We're going to be camping out here in Exodus 19 for two weeks. That's a pastoral joke for those smart ones who are uh, paying attention to the text and know what's happening. We're going to be camping out here for two weeks. Why is that a pastoral joke? This, this is the way pastors joke, right? It's awesome. Um, because they were literally now, they've been wandering in the wilderness, uh, and they were going to now camp out. They are at their final destination uh, in Exodus, and the, the remainder of Exodus and the entire book of Leviticus will play out at Mount Sinai, or, or Sinai as they might say. And, and so we're going to be camping out here for two weeks uh, before we return to John 13 after Easter. Uh, so, Easter Sunday, next week, we're going to be doing two-part series. We will be in Exodus 19 again next week, and then jumping around a few places, and you're going to, I think, maybe see some, some pretty neat things. Now, Nick noted last week, Nick Tanaka noted last week, he's not here, he's on Oahu helping with some family matters. Um, we have come full circle in chapter 19 now. In, in Exodus chapter 3, God appears to Moses in a burning what? bush. And he says, uh, when I call my people out of Egypt, uh, Egypt, you will come back and you will serve me on this 
mountain. And now here they are, today's text, bring them back full circle to the mountain of God where Moses initially met God. Now, interestingly enough, uh, today is what? Palm? Palm Sunday. Not Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday in uh, the Holy Week and the Easter calendar, the church calendar, is the day we uh, typically recount the, the entrance, the triumphant entrance of Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited king, riding on a, thank you, uh, into Jerusalem, and all the crowds are waving palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? And Hosanna means save now or save, Lord, now save. So we remember that time in the life of Jesus when the king enters Jerusalem and the people, his people, Israel, come and they behold their king, and they attest to his kingship over them, his Messiah, their Messiah. Now, long before he ever entered the donkey, today's passage is the very first appearance of God to his corporate people, Israel. He set them out. They have seen him in the plagues. God has just rained down judgment and wrath on Egypt uh, through the ten plagues. And, and now, for the first time, it is the formal introduction. They've been moving this whole time. He's been in a pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, leading them, uh, taking them here. And now he is going to introduce them for the first time. So the sermon, Behold, not their God, our God. Thank you. Behold, our God. So let's pray and see what we have before us. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you so much for the body of Christ here at Kahului Baptist Church. I thank you for the visitors who are here. And Lord, I, we desperately need to behold you and your awesome greatness this morning. So Lord, as we examine your text, as we examine your words, may your spirit impress on our souls a sense of your majesty, of your splendor, of your transcendence. As we reflect on this time that you introduced yourself to your people in great terror in many ways. And Father, may we see that same God present in Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. And would you feed our souls? Would we be uh, reignited to live holy lives as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a treasured possession? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So long before he entered on a donkey, he introduced himself with great fan flare and great terror to his people. That's where we will end, land the plane today. I've got uh, three points because it just makes it nice. And for all of you who take notes, it makes it nice. Uh, number one, God's message. God's message. Number two, God's mediator. And number three, God's manifestation. So all M's. Could you break the passage down differently? Absolutely. I would actually see four sections, but we're going to cover it in three 
points, so uh, we'll work through it. Number one, verses one through six, God's message. Now, this is pretty neat. There's just a little side application here in verses one and two. On the third new moon of chapter 19, verse 1, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And if you go to the end of verse 2, it says, there Israel encamped before the mountain of God. Now, what is the application there? Pastor Randy, right off the bat, verse 1, if you were to look on a map, if I, were to, if I get a map for you, and you look on a map and see where the promised land was located, which is now modern-day kind of Israel, Palestine, are all fighting over the land, right? If you were to see the, the modern-day promised land and where they believe Mount Sinai was located after coming out of Egypt, it was almost as if God was taking them the opposite way. Wait a minute, I thought you, you promised to bring us to a land that was nice and flowing with milk and honey and all these things, but we're going the wrong way. And he actually had led them the wrong way right out of Egypt. They were just wandering in the wilderness right at the outset. What is the application here? I tell, oh, believers, beloved, I tell people over and over and over again, when you follow Christ, when you make the decision to follow the Lord, there's been this false teaching that's been rampant in the church that if you follow Jesus, your life gets better, things get easier, you have more money, relationships start looking up, cloudy skies start to depart, and it's blue all the way, and green lights all the way to work. That's kind of this false notion that's come in. And so no matter how many times I tell people this, no matter how many texts from the scriptures that I try and tell otherwise, it still seems to shock people that when you decide to follow the Lord, to surrender your life to him and leave Egypt, often things look like they start to go backwards and get worse before they get better. And I tell people that over and over. I tell you that over and over and over again. I preach it. But something still doesn't seem to prepare you for that hook that life throws. Because I can tell you over and over that many times God plans, that his plans appear to work backwards than our plans, and yet he's moving you forward to Christ-likeness and to glory. And I can tell you that many times over and over, and yet still, when the hit comes, it hurts. It hurts. When I was a young man in high school, uh, my senior year, I contracted spinal meningitis, um, and one of the ways they, actually the only way they test for that is through a spinal tap, um, a big long needle. They make you curl over into the fetal position and hold on. Sometimes they, they put something in your mouth <laughs> and they, they inject this long needle into your spine and hit the spinal fluid and it's got to bust all the pockets and things and um, it feels fantastic. No, the doctor doesn't lie. He doesn't hold any punches. Uh, he says he he just said uh, I'm not I'm gonna be straight with you it's gonna hurt and, and hurt it did <laughs> and hurt it did as I'm holding on like okay it's gonna hurt but he says it's not gonna hurt super long I was like okay <laughs> liar um, 
So it, it hurts, and that's what we see with life, isn't it? I can tell you God's plans often appear to work backwards. It's going to hurt, but something just doesn't seem to prepare us for that, that hurt when it comes. Now, why do I tell you that? Knowing it's going to hurt doesn't take away the hurt. Knowing that there's going to be an end to the hurt, knowing that it will get better and result in your glory is what gives us what? Hope. Is what gives us joy in the midst of the trial. So, we see right there off the bat, uh, often it works backwards. Now, there's a lot of elements to this passage uh, that uh, upon first reading verses 3 on through the rest of it, uh, you would miss. You would just miss. This is a culture. Remember, the Bible came to us. Uh, this was over 2,000 years old. Many, many, many years have passed. Many moons have passed, and we just miss a lot of the cultural things that's happening in the passage. Now, this is what's known, actually, this is the beginning of what's known as a suzerain treaty. A suzerain treaty. And now what happened in the ancient Near East, because um, right after this passage is what? Exodus 20. What's found in Exodus 20? The Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments. That's what's found in Exodus 20, right? So uh, now we have the law of God about to come. This is a prologue to that, a preamble. Verse 3 is a preamble to the treaty that they're about to enter into with God. Now, what would happen in the ancient Near East is a king or some other larger state or nation would come and conquer another nation. And that nation would now owe this conquering king uh, tribute, allegiance, um, service, right? All these types of things. Uh, homage. They're going to pay homage to this greater king. They have been conquered, and, and now these are all the things that are due. And what they would enter into would be that treaty. Either you bow the knee and give us what we're asking, or everybody dies. Okay. <laughs> Take the treaty. So, this is, what, this is what this is. This is the beginning of, these are the terms. So now, verse 3 is a type of preamble. God, the king, is now addressing his people. Verse 3, when Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Now, verse 4 is a history of the relationship. So the preamble would be followed by a history of how these two peoples came to know one another, generally through battle, and it would culminate in a final battle, a big battle. And so it's going to now recall the history of their relationship. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's a very brief summary of how they came to interrelations with one another. The Lord brought them out of Egypt. And then there's a setting of terms, right? I said allegiance, obedience, all these things accompanied by promises of blessing and promises of curse if you do not obey. Now listen to verse 5. This is that. Now, therefore, if you will indeed, what is it? Obey my voice and keep my covenant. Whose covenant? Mine. This is not negotiations, right? God is not a negotiator, Priceline negotiator. That's not God. He is setting the terms of his covenant with his people. 
because he is supreme. He is sovereign. Verse 5, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people. Now, that's the promised blessings. If you will do this, then this will happen. You'll be my treasured possession, and on and on and on. And then, these, the, the terms are further explained in chapter the next chapter, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, which is further fleshed out in Exodus 20 to 23. You then have the covenant ceremony, the ratifying of the covenant in Exodus chapter 24. And then what would happen is two copies would be made, as it would be today, one copy for one nation, the other copy for the other nation. So Exodus 32, 15, you see the, how many tablets of testimony? Two. Two tablets of testimony, one for each. And Moses got mad and broke them, and that's another story for another day. We'll get there. This is the components, the essential elements of the treaty that God's people are entering, entering into, a covenant that God is setting with his people. Did he conquer them? No, not like a nation would conquer another nation. What did he do? He redeemed them. He brought them out of slavery. Now, this is very, 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 very important. Did you get that? Kind of important. Why is this important? We're getting the history of their salvation before, before the law. God redeemed his people. He saved his people. He drew them out of Egypt by grace. That's what he said. I brought you to myself. He saved his people by grace. And then he gives them the law. That is very important. I can't stress how important that is is to us. Why is that important? Because this is the order of our salvation, and so easily, even if we wouldn't say it, so easily, practically, we flip it. We flip it. First, we want law, then salvation. How do we flip it? We flip it when we say, when we mess up and we sin and we say, I, I, I shouldn't be in church. I can't even pray and crack my Bible open. God's not going to accept me. Wait a minute. What? God's not going to accept you on the basis because you didn't do something right? That is how we flip it. That is how we flip it. When we forget the order of our salvation that God redeems us first, not because of goodness that we have done, not by works of righteousness that we have accomplished by the strength of our own hands, not by any of these things, not on the merits of whether I cleansed myself of my sin, but God redeems us. He draws us out of slavery to sin, and then he teaches us how to live. Amen. Amen. This is important, the order of salvation the order of God's working with his people. He saves you. God set them free. Now, they've already exercised their faith in Passover. 
That was the Passover, right? The Passover lamb. You have to slay this lamb, paint it on your doorpost. That is their, their exercising of their faith. And the scriptures look back on this and say, the just shall live by faith. We are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, once we are set free, once we are identified not as slaves but as freemen, now, now God teaches us how to live in accordance or in conjunction or uh, in line would be a better way with His holiness. With His holiness. If you miss this, if you miss this, you will miss this passage and the message of the entire Bible. The entire Bible. You will, you will be a person who thinks that you have to be better. You will think that other people have to be a certain way, and if they are not a certain way, you will punish them if you miss this. If you miss this. Now, does this mean there's no standard of holiness? No, absolutely there's a standard of holiness. That's the Ten Commandments. That's what's about to come down. But the, the driving factor is that the change starts on the inside and flows outside versus starting from the outside and flowing inside. Inside. So, super important. God recounts. He saves us. Then the law comes. Now we have that overview of the identity, right? Verses 5, 6, and on. Uh, What does he say? He says in verse 5, this is just awesome. It's worth just talking about a little bit. And you know when Pastor Randy says talking about a little bit, I mean actually kind of maybe a lot, all right? So, uh, verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my He gives three things, my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests to me, and a holy nation. Those are the three things. If you keep these things, this is your identity. My treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. Verse 5, for this is important actually, and I can't talk about it now. I'm just going to note it. For all the earth is what? Mine. So what's so important about that? That is one of the earliest and most radical statements of monotheism in the Bible. God is educating his people. Remember, they grew up in a polytheistic culture, the gods of Egypt. There's many gods, and there's different gods over different aspects of creation and different aspects of the earth, and you have to pay homage to them and worship them. And this carries on in many pagan religions all the way up to the time of Jesus and Apostle Paul in Athens. They're worshiping different gods. And and now the first and earliest statement in the Bible, very clear, of monotheism, that there is one God, one God. This would have been a very radical statement to them and to the mixed multitude that came out with them. Why? Because he's claiming not just one aspect of the earth is mine, all of it. All the earth is mine, and all the peoples are mine. Wow. And he just demonstrated even peoples who don't worship him like the Egyptians are mine too. What's the difference about these peoples? You'll be my treasured possession. Not that the rest of them aren't mine. They're all mine. You will be my treasured possession, those whom I enter into covenant with. That's very important. This doesn't seem as important today in 2017 in April, sitting here in Maui County, but it's very important to Egyptian Christians right now who just got bombed by Islamic radical militants uh, and of whom I think 56 have died this morning. 
This is very important to them. Why? Because one of the roots of the differences between Christianity and Islam is the nature of God. They view us as saying, God, there's one God, or uh, a tri. We, they would misunderstand our doctrine of the Trinity. They would be a Unitarian monotheist. We are Trinitarian monotheists. And on the basis of that, they go off and have many, many different radical assumptions that are wrong about the nature of God. The doctrine of the Trinity is very, very important. Like I said, I don't have time to flesh that out more. But that is, at the heart, monotheism. The nature, the, the character, the type of monotheism at stake in these types of things. And it makes big implications for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. It's the earliest monotheistic statement in the Bible. My treasured possessions, all the earth is mine. Now, treasured possession. Man, that's just an awesome thing. That word for treasure is a Hebrew word that would describe a king's personal treasury. So that is his personal. So kings have all sorts of treasury. David uh, built the temple out of the treasury of Egypt that he had access to as king, but he had a personal treasury that he dipped into to make it even better. This is the king's personal treasury stash, if you will. It's like uh, after he leaves office, right? Obama leaves office. He leaves the White House. He leaves his authority. He leaves all these things, but then he gets that personal like salary or whatever that follows him for the rest of his life. That is, that's his. That follows him. This is the king's personal treasure. What God is saying is, you are my treasure. If you'll do these things in my covenant, identified as my people, you are my treasured people. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. God treasures his people. Why does he treasure you? Why does God treasure you? I'm going to give you the answer. It's not going to be the answer you think I'm going to give you. God treasures his people because God treasures and values his glory and his great name. Why does God treasure me? Because God treasures and values his glory and his great name, or the glory of his great name. Let me give you some scripture first, because I'm going to set the stage and I'm just going to knock something going around evangelicalism. Jeremiah 13, 11, So I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me, here it is, a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Why did he make them? Why did he bring them to himself? So that they would be a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Psalm 106, verse 7 through 8, recounting this time right here. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, they did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. And get this, yet... He saved them, why? For his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. I could do this over and over. I could go all day with passages like this. There's this idea. What do I want to address? I want to address this idea floating around in Christianity that sounds good on the surface, but is actually destructive. It doesn't come from the scriptures. It's an influence of modern psychology. And it comes from the teaching about self-esteem, not from the scriptures. This is 
This is something how it will play out. God treasures you, that must mean you're valuable. God treasures you, that must mean you have some value to you. The reason why you're sinning or struggling is because you don't realize how valuable you are to God. So if you would just consider and believe it, that God made you, God doesn't make trash, he, he makes things that are good, and just believe that you are valuable and realize how valuable you are, then that will set you free from all these struggles that you have. That sounds so good, doesn't it? Sounds almost right. And it's very destructive. It's very destructive. And it's unbiblical, to say the least. This is not about how valuable you are that makes you a treasured possession. It's about how gracious and good God is to an unworthy, rebellious people. That is the message of the Scriptures over and over. He's going to tell Israel that in those terms. I didn't save you because you were greater or better or more desirable than all the nations around you. I set my love on you because that's what I did. Because I'm God. That's his answer. Our value comes by virtue of the fact that God, Almighty God, identifies with his covenant people by faith. That's where our value comes from. By faith, we find that we are united with God, once enemies, hostile to God. By faith, now brought into a union with Christ that is inseparable, of which the marriage bond is patterned off of, where the two somehow become what? One flesh. And Paul tells us this is a picture of the gospel. And so our value comes not intrinsically because of who you are and God doesn't make junk. No, 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 no. We have sin just in all of us, coming out of us, out of our heart just flows sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because we are born in sin. In sin did our mothers conceive you, right? You can't go a day without messing up. Neither can I. You say, wow, this is not encouraging. I'll tell you why. Just hang with me. Hang with me. Our value doesn't come from it. It comes by virtue of by faith. We are united with God as in a marriage covenant. What happens in a marriage covenant? A bride and a, a husband come together, and everything that is his becomes hers, such that her identity even changes, doesn't it? Her name changes, doesn't it? Her last name, she takes on the last name of her husband. As my wife was Brittany Smith, she is now Brittany Polly, henceforth and forevermore. And now everything that I have, which is not much when you get married, becomes hers and vice versa. So she can say what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine, right? It's a happy marriage. It's all my marriage counseling. But you see, our value comes by the fact that when we are wedded with Christ by faith and faith alone, everything that he is becomes ours. And now holy God identifies himself in wonder of wonders with unworthy people. And you don't have to work for it. Wow. That's where our value comes from. 
The idea of you being a treasure and just needing to realize and believe it leads to greater depression and greater hopelessness. Why? Because it leaves people hopelessly looking for something they'll never find. Just believe in yourself. Just realize how great this treasure is. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and do that. I'm just, I'm a treasure. I'm a treasure. And then they mess up again and again, and they don't feel like a treasure, do they? Well, I, I must just need to believe harder and try harder. I just need to look deeper. It leaves them hopeless and depressed because they're looking for something they'll never find. God doesn't intend for his people to look inward. He intends for them to look upward upward. The problem's not that we don't value ourselves enough. It's the exact opposite. We value ourselves too much. We think too highly of ourselves and think too little of God. This is closely related to another idea that floats around in Christian circles, uh, the idea that you need to forgive yourself. You can't forgive yourself. You can't. It's impossible. By virtue, you have a debt that you cannot pay. It has to be paid by another. I tried that with my student loans to forgive my debt. It didn't work. I had to pay them. If you sin, you have a debt that you owe to God that must be paid, one that is infinite. It can only be paid by another. You cannot forgive yourself. Only God can forgive you. Both of these are related because they both leave you looking inward at yourself instead of upward, ultimately, finally, and practically to God. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's where our help comes from. That is a fighter verse as well. Praise God. Praise God. And when I look upward to God, he will never, never fail me. So we are a treasured possession. That means when we trust in him by faith, he looks at us because of uh, our faith and his identity with us, because of the glory of his great name, and he treasures us. He treasures us. That should raise a lot of questions for you. I hope it does. We'll talk about that another time. Number two, a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Israel would be a kingdom of priests. This is going to play out in a few ways. One, Israel is going to proclaim the truth of God and invite other nations to accept him and follow him, just like Jethro did in chapter 18. They're going to be that, that mediator, if you will, nationally to the nations for God. And then within Israel, this would also mean that every person in Israel would serve and worship God alone. God alone, that they would worship God this title, Kingdom of Priests, had a global implication. Had one personally that they would serve and worship God, but a global implication that the entire nation would serve other nations and be God's priests to the world. So one theologian said, Israel was not saved only from the nations, but for the nations. In fulfillment of Genesis 12. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. There would be a kingdom of priests. They'd also be a holy nation. See, God was about to give them laws that were unique from every other nation around them, very unique and different. And they still are, actually, when understood and applied properly. They're still unique and different. The, the summarized in the Ten Commandments, right? 
The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. He's going to give them a law that's going to make them a holy nation if they followed it. They would be a peculiar people among all the nations. And as they lived in light of this law, this holiness would exude from them. Their difference would exude from them. And all the nations would take note. That's different. That's different. I want to know the God, the power of the God of Israel. And they would come. And they would come. This is a very different ministry practice from what we see in churches today. Many churches today say, well, we need to, we need to be kind of like the world. We've got to give them something that they like. What do they like? And let's kind of cater to that. What kind of music does the world like? What type, what type of practices, activities, demographic studies, all these things do people like? Let's kind of do that and cater to that and then kind of bait and switch them with the, with the gospel. Very different ministry practice. No, it's actually backwards. He says, be a holy people. You shall be holy for I am holy. You preach the gospel and I will draw all people to myself. God does the work. He asks us to be faithful. We're to live a holy life, to be a holy nation. Now, in a mind-blowing change and turn of events, the very same titles are applied to the church of Jesus Christ today. New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Check this out. This is thousands of years into the future now. Remember our language? New Testament, the church, modern, this is us. That was them. You, Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his what? Marvelous light. We could give Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, Revelation 5, 10, Revelation 26, all of these passages again and again. You're seeing this language come up and applied to the church. Wow, that is us, beloved. That is you. You are a treasured possession by faith in Christ. You are a kingdom of priests to intercede on behalf of the nations to God. You don't need a pastor. You don't need somebody like this to tell you and intercede for your family. You don't have to do all these things and come to me and me alone. You have status of priesthood because of our great high priest, Jesus. And you can come directly to the throne room of grace in prayer. Wow. Man, it's a privilege, a privilege we have. This has huge implications. This begs a question that has huge implications, how you answer it. It's not an easy question to answer. It's for those who like to study a little bit more uh, and on your own time, check this out. This begs the question, if these titles are applied to the church, this begs the question, what is the relationship of Israel and the church underneath the Old and New Covenant? You think that sounds like a theological exercise. It actually has massive, massive implications for your life. We don't have time to flesh it out right now. That's for you to study, think about it, talk about it over lunch, and we'll talk about it another time. Number two, God's mediator. 
Number two, God's mediator. And don't worry if you're like, wait, we still have three points. We're only in number two. Because uh, we're going to remember it's a two-part series, so my third point will blend in next week. It's okay. Uh, God's mediator. Moses standing and God's mediating, uh, mediating God's message to Israel and Israel's message back to the people. In essence, God has a message for the people. Get ready. I'm coming. That's essentially it. Consecrate yourselves. Get ready, I'm coming. Over and over, he's told to do that, and Moses does it, and it comes out again and again. Be ready for the third day, because on the third day, I'm going to come. So you've got three days, Moses, two million people, to wash your clothes, and don't touch a woman. That's actually kind of good practice in general, especially if you're a single believer. Okay, if you're single, you'll do well if you follow that. Wash your clothes. No, I'm kidding, right? I'm being, uh, wash your clothes. Why? Because uh, they, God demands preparation before you come into his presence. God demands preparation before you come into his presence. Um, we can talk about that another time. I'm not going to say you need to come here and wear a suit and tie and take a bath or anything like that, right? Um, however, please take a bath at least. Maybe. If you smell. Okay? No. The idea of consecrating yourselves it actually would have been an act of faith because where are they again? They're in the desert. Over and over again, there's been no what? Water. When you're in a desert and you don't have any water, do you use the water you have to wash your clothes? No. You preserve it, you keep it, you save it, you ration it so that you don't die. But now God, by faith, they have to trust that God's going to continue to provide for them water such that two million people have to wash their clothes. If you just play this out practically in your mind, there's probably long lines. It's probably hot. There's probably limited access to the water, so they have to wait. This is why they're given three days to do so. Uh, and there's just a big undertaking but yet they're going to encounter the most mind-blowing thing they will have ever seen in their lives. God demands preparation. I'm just going to give one little application point, let you flush it out, because I don't have time to. Uh, it may be that so many times we come to church and we leave and we feel deflated, or we don't feel as encouraged or as if we encountered the living God because we haven't taken time to prepare our souls. This is easy to put on the pastor. Well, if the pastor would have preached better, I try to preach better, okay? If, if the band would have played better, if whatever was better, then maybe I would feel better. But sometimes I'm going to put the spotlight on you. I'm going to hold up the mirror to you. We live such hurried, busied, frazzled lives going from thing to thing to thing to thing. And we have no preparation before we come and encounter the living God. What would happen if you took Saturday to prepare for the Lord's Day? What would happen if you got everything laid out the night before, put, a, put the crock pot in, put all these things in so you're not running around crazy and biting each other's heads off on the way in the morning into the parking lot and in the car, and then you stop and you come out and you, praise God, it's good to be here. <laughs> if you washed your clothes and washed your heart a little bit, to prepare to meet God, to prepare to meet the living God. Think about that. God demands preparation before we worship him. That's all I have to say about that. Don't have enough time. 
And then the last one is God's manifestation, point three. God's manifestation. Oh, man, this is just, I'm just going to read this passage. It just kind of speaks for itself. I don't know that I could do better than the Holy Spirit here. Uh, under his, I ever could do better than the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, here we go. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, to meet their God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And now the mount was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, or you might think like a volcano. This is not a volcano. Volcanoes are not uh, accompanied by all these things and trumpet sounds, right? If Haleakala ever sounds a trumpet before it blows, that would be interesting, right? But to my knowledge, no volcano eruption has been accompanied by the sound of a trumpet and many other things seen in this passage the Lord had descended on it like fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and God answered him, and thundered. Can you see this engaging all of the senses? All of their senses, uh, they're, they're seeing smoke, they're feeling heat, fire, shaking. I imagine it's the type of thundering and trembling that you can like feel and your everything inward is trembling as well. And Moses even says, we learn in Hebrews, he says that Moses is even terrified. Why? Because God had met Moses on this same mountain in fire, but not like this. Not like this. Moses said, I'm trembling greatly. I am greatly. And all the people of Israel were freaked out. As Nick would say in his sermon, they got that shishi feeling I'd never heard before. That was new for me. God's transcendence and holiness is seen here. Do you ever get a sense? See, our, our culture has lost a Oh, there it is. Our culture has lost a sense of God's greatness. We have so emphasized his eminence, his nearness in Christ, that at times we have lost a sense of the bigness, the vastness, the majesty of God. And truly, we have little in our culture to mimic such a sense, because our culture has no regard for the sacred. Each of these phenomena is revealing a different aspect of God's character. The thunder, one scholar said, and the earthquake were signs of his power. The thunder and earthquake, signs of his power. The dark cloud was a sign of his mystery. God is mysterious. He is unapproachable. There's aspects of his being that we human beings cannot penetrate. The fire is a sign of his holiness, his burning purity, his brightness. It's also a sign of his danger towards sinners. God is holy. So you can't even, he tells his people, don't approach the mountain, don't even touch it. What will happen? You'll die. Capital punishment. Not only can you not touch the mountain, you can't even touch somebody who has touched the mountain. So if, if Jim touches the mountain, Jim dies. And if Bill touches Jim who touched the mountain, Bill dies. So however you do with the body, don't touch them. This 
is a holiness like we have never seen. God is not to be trifled with. The trumpet is a sign of his sovereignty. When a king comes, he's accompanied by trumpet sounds. We're waiting for another trumpet sound, aren't we? When Jesus comes, he's going to be accompanied with the sound of a trumpet and the voice of an archangel. All of this signifying, displaying the glory of God, the sum total of his attributes to his people. When was the last time you felt the greatness of this God, that he is high above you, that you are not worthy in and of yourself to come into his presence? We need to recapture that. We need to recapture that because that will be as we sense his differentness, his otherness, and yet his eminence in Christ, his nearness in Christ will change us, will change us to be like himself. Where's Jesus in this text? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Where's Jesus in this text? For that, we will have to wait till next week. However, Jesus still dwells in unapproachable light. Let me close with this. 1 Timothy 6, 4 through 6, 14 through 16. He will display at the proper time the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, and here it is, who dwells, in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Be ready, beloved, for the third day. I'll see you Easter Sunday. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. May we be a people who hear it and respond in worship and awe. And may we likewise consecrate ourselves by your word through your spirit and be ready for Easter Sunday and worship you, not only in your transcendence, but also in your eminence and your nearness in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.